Welcome to this third in our special series focused on renal cell cancer. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. In this special series, we attempt to utilize three successful audio production formats to highlight some of the critical issues in management of this rapidly evolving disease. Our first program used an investigator roundtable or think tank format. The second utilized our interview format. And in this third program, we used a case-based approach. And we begin with two panel discussions where investigators present patients from their practices, beginning with Drs. Ron Bukowski and Dan George. Dr. Bukowski presented a 42-year-old man with a very unexpected diagnosis of RCC. A young gentleman, 42, and most people at the age of 42 are pretty indestructible. And even if you do have a sense of something wrong, you tend to minimize it. And I think that's what these people do for the most part, until he develops some hematuria. And that's sort of a very dramatic thing sometimes that happens to patients when they see blood in their urine. Even though they feel well, they're going to seek attention appropriately. And they'll seek attention either with their primary physician, in his case, or if they have a urologist, they'll see a urologist. But at the age of 42, most people don't have urologists. They don't need them. And the obvious thing when examining somebody like this, when you see him and you hear the story, you're going to think about, well, what causes hematuria? You know, the obvious things are in a young man, bladder, prostate. But given our specialty, obviously, we always think of the worst, right? We always think of, well, this could be something with the kidney. So when he saw his physician, examination really was very pertinent because it demonstrated a large left upper quadrant mass. You could feel this thing. And usually at the size it was, 10 centimeters, it's a palpable mass. And what's amazing about these people is they feel well despite having these huge tumors. Had he had pain or any symptoms? You know, it's not necessarily the fact that they'll have symptoms from this. Not until they develop something like hematuria does it lead them to seek attention. Now, in retrospect, he may have had a little bit of early satiety, a little bit of weight loss, things that they tend to ignore when you're young. And you say, well, you know, it's just my lifestyle. I'm busy. I'm working 24-7. And, you know, I'm just a hard-driving guy. So that's normal. And not until something really abnormal develops are they going to say, well, it's time I see somebody or it's time I seek attention. And so the left upper quadrant mass really was the finding by his physician that led to the series of studies that were performed. And putting two and two together, when a guy has blood in the urine and a large left upper quadrant mass, it's going to more than likely be a renal tumor given those two findings, and that's what this fellow had. But the remarkable thing about these individuals is that despite the fact they have large renal tumors that have spread quite widely, they're pretty much asymptomatic once the hematuria is taken care of. These people are well. He really was an intermediate prognostic patient because the disease-free interval is zero. Basically, that means he had METS at the time of that. So, he so falls can you go through that. his workup? So workup would be pretty straightforward in this situation. The initial studies would be CAT scans, imaging procedures of the abdomen, pelvis, and also chest. You know, 15 years ago, we do chest x-rays, but now it's really the requirement that we do chest CTs in order to image this. And unfortunately, he not only had a large renal mass that was present, but he had bilateral lung nodules. Now, they were small. They were less than two centimeters, but there were multiple in both lung fields, remarkably asymptomatic. And we generally will image other areas in these types of individuals, including the central nervous system, using an MRI or a CAT scan and a bone scan. Even in the absence of symptoms, my tendency is in a patient with widely disseminated disease like this to get the maximum amount of information possible here. What about his hemoglobin in terms of the hematuria? His hematuria was modest, so it wasn't of the degree to cause anemia. Anything, Dan, you want to ask about him? about this case at this point? Anything else you'd want to know? Or maybe I could ask you, I mean, obviously the issue here is getting tissue. Also taking out the kidney as a way of getting tissue. What would you be thinking about the next step? 
A couple of things on someone like this, you know, what his kidney function is on his other kidney. And a lot of times we'll do like a renal flow scan or something like that before we'll take out the other kidney. Now, in a younger guy like this, without a significant past medical history, we wouldn't anticipate to find anything. But every once in a while, we get surprised and, you know, the renal function isn't quite as symmetric as you might expect, especially if they already have some underlying renal insufficiency to begin with, that's when I get nervous. So if he's got a normal creatinine going in, chances are he'll be fine with a total nephrectomy. And certainly a mass this size would require a full nephrectomy. You'd want to do a total radical nephrectomy on that side. The only other things we'd be thinking about in a gentleman like this would be in terms of next steps, whether or not we'd consider high-dose interleukin-2 for him. Because he's young, because he's otherwise asymptomatic, really lung-only disease, as far as we can tell at this point in time, and low-volume disease, He's somebody that we would consider for high-dose interleukin-2 therapy following nephrectomy. And, you know, having those discussions ahead of time just helps him in terms of his planning and what's going to come next. Before we get into exactly what happened in terms of the medical course, what was his emotional or personal reaction? And what an incredible situation for a 42-year-old man to face. I think when you face a patient with this kind of a diagnosis that there's one of two reactions. This kind of an individual generally reacts appropriately and says, well, you know, I understand it. I'm going to face it and I'm going to meet the challenge and proceed forward. And what do I need to do, doc? That's the next question. What do I need to do? What's our next step? How do we take care of this? And that was his approach. And I think that's appropriate. Now, the other types are more grief stricken, have a hard time coping with it. But I think young people like this who are hard driving are of that kind. So Dan, a man like this says to you, I know we're just getting started here, but in terms of your best guess, what's your chance I'm going to be around in two years and in five years? So for a gentleman like this, looking at him as a intermediate to good risk disease situation. We'd look at his chance of being alive at two years now by our current standards in the era of targeted therapy as being greater than 50%. And in being in sort of that good to favorable category, you know, I'd consider that probably on the high end of that. So probably somewhere like 60-70% chance of being alive at two years. At five years, it's less. It's going to be harder to know for sure. We don't have as much data on the five-year survival rates in the era of targeted therapy now, but would probably peg it somewhere around a 20% chance. So what was the next step with this man? Well, I think the approach that I've used and I still use is one of saying, well, you've got a large renal tumor, you're in a category of patients that Dan just described who may do well over a period of time, and so we should be very aggressive here, okay? And what's the traditional paradigm for treatment? Well, remove the primary tumor. I don't think we're all comfortable that it's necessarily 100% proven that that's what we should be doing right now, but I think we feel that based on previous data, it seems reasonable to do that. And so a urology consult, let's say that, let's be certain that this is a resectable cancer, all right, that there are no issues with regard to, as Dan said, renal function or other issues that might arise that would preclude removal of this cancer. It's not likely he can have a partial nephrectomy given the size of it. It would be almost impossible. But certainly, removal of the primary tumor is the next step. And that gives us certain things. That gives us a diagnosis. I mean, we don't need to biopsy anything if we're going to take the tumor out, right? We can get the diagnosis at the time of surgery. And Dan, in this situation, he has a significant symptom of hematuria, But I imagine there are patients who present without symptoms from the primary, and a lot of them might have symptoms from the METs, for example, bone pain. Where are we right now in terms of nephrectomy in those patients? We just did a national patterns of care study in the last couple of months, incidentally, and one of the things we looked at was this issue. We presented a patient just like that, a 773, asymptomatic in the primary, not that big, five centimeters, I think, but significant symptomatology from the metastases. 
and 51% of the docs said they would send the patient for nephrectomy, and 49% said they'd send them for systemic therapy. Kind of a consensus. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it does reflect, I think, you know, this has been the number one question we've gotten from docs in practice. What's the answer? I think in a situation like that, you really do individualize. It is hard to come down dogmatically one way or the other. In general, though, I would say for patients that have symptomatic meds in a primary that is not extremely large, you know, five centimeters without the metastatic disease is stage one disease. I mean, just to put that in perspective, it's 1B, but we don't necessarily consider a five centimeter renal mass as being one that is that problematic in terms of local issues or other concerns. So to me, with somebody who's already symptomatic for metastatic disease, not to treat systemically, knowing that doing that nephrectomy, you've got at least a few weeks, if not a month or more down period, and not knowing the natural history of that disease very well since they're newly diagnosed, I'd be very concerned, particularly for bone. And the thing about bone, Neil, is that you know about 30% of kidney cancer patients have bone metastasis. The bone metastases tend to be very lytic. And when you look at studies that looked at, you know, sort of bone targeted like bisphosphonate studies that took at all solid tumors, kidney cancer had one of the highest incidence of skeletal related events. These are lytic lesions that tend to be aggressive, destructive, and already symptomatic with pain. You're likely to get more symptoms, and particularly if it's involving the spine. That's where I get particularly nervous. So that's the group of patients where I think you're really taking a chance if you focus on the kidney with symptomatic spine meds and not treating those up front. That, to me, you really have to do. But, you know, if it's a single rib lesion, that's a little bit different scenario. You're not going to get into a major traumatic issue, even if that increases. And you could radiate it while they're recovering from surgery. So to me, it depends a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if they're in the recovery period of surgery and that rib lesion is really getting symptomatic, Mm -hmm. you know, you could do a course of radiation. But in general, symptomatic meds, I'm almost always treating the symptomatic disease first. So Ron, you know, this discussion today is part of an integrated curriculum that we're doing over a period of six months. We're producing three different types of audio programs and we're doing a number of patterns of care studies to see if we can actually show nationally some changes in what happens in terms of some of our learning objectives. And this is the third program. The second program, Nick Vogelsang was on, and one of the things I was talking about with him was his recent case report in the Journal of Clinical Oncology of a patient. Again, primary in place. I think he's been treating her two years now with systemic therapy, and he actually showed pre and post CAT scans. Any comments on well, that? You know, those are anecdotes. I mean, let's put it in perspective. That's an anecdote and has no place in the management overall of this cancer. You have to go back and look at the data on bone metastases in order to make sense of what happens to these patients. And there's a lot of it. I mean, it goes back in the 1970s, and we looked at this at the Cleveland Clinic. We tried to get a sense of what happens to patients with bone metastases with and without primary tumors in place. Are there subsets of patients who do exceptionally well? And indeed, there are. Now, imaging procedures have changed, and how we evaluate patients have changed. But I think Dan's sense of that you must individualize here is probably correct. Oh, There's yeah. not one that fits all, all right, because there are patients, even with symptomatic bone mets, who are best served by having their primary tumor removed. And I don't know that we can say that you shouldn't. I think the way I approach this is spinal metastases, to me, mean that you must pay attention to that. I've only seen disasters when we have not. So if you have somebody with spine mets, you really must image the entire spine and get an understanding of, is this patient at risk for 
a skeletal-related complication. Do they need radiation immediately? Now, on the other hand, we now have available to us laparoscopic nephrectomy. We can treat these patients with radiation within a matter of days after the surgery. So I'm not sure that we should change entirely the paradigm. I think we have to look at the patient, uh, understand the location of a metastatic disease, you know, how much volume is there, and then try to get up a sense of how he's best treated. Because in this patient, a 10 centimeter mass is sure. not going to go away. That's he's, a going to need, he's going to need something. Five centimeters, it won't go away, but it's controllable with our current therapy. So I think there's no black and white answer here saying yes or no for bone metastases. I think there are patients who have very indolent bone metastases over a period of years who do quite well. There are patients who have rapidly progressive disease, and I'm not sure we can separate those groups out right now. Yeah, you know, we've worked with both of you and a lot of other people now for a number of years in education programs, and this really wasn't on our radar at all. You know, I'd ask people about nephrectomy, and of course they refer to the randomized studies, and it just wasn't much of an issue. And then when we started to ask docs, what do you want us to ask them? This is the number one thing. And we did the survey, and we saw the controversy. And then I think the other thing that's affected people is what happened in colon cancer. And there was a report by Memorial, for example, at ASCO showing that they were able to get people a different disease totally. But again, in terms of the paradigm, they reported on 293 patients with metastatic disease in primaries who never had surgery, or 95% didn't require surgery. So I think it's maybe an area, you know, have a lot more effective therapies. So what happened with this man next? So he had a nephrectomy. He didn't have bone metastases. He had nothing that would contraindicate it. He had a laparoscopic nephrectomy, easily done. And then the issue of what to do next is the prime importance to these folks. I mean, should he consider, he had clear cell carcinoma, Furman grade three. Should he consider high dose IL-2? Age is perfect. Pulmonary metastases, this is the kind of person that if you're going to treat with that drug, probably is the one who's going to likely benefit the most. Usually, the way I've handled it is I've presented the data to the patient saying, well, here is your choices. Okay, high dose IL-2 at a center that does it well, and the chances of you having you know, these small pulmonary nodules disappear for a long period of time, almost totally, is probably about, what, 8 to 10%. The figures will vary, but in that range. And it's a highly selected situation. So if you're interested in that kind of therapy, that's great. We send you to a tertiary center that does high-dose IL-2. Dan, is there a tissue assay that I think is starting to be looked at to predict who does better with high-dose IL-2? You know, that's been a... I don't want to say a holy grail, but it's certainly been a fine relic that people have been looking for to predict how to enrich for response, particularly that durable response that we see with high-dose IL-2. And, you know, it's been very elusive, Neil. Probably the closest thing that's come out is the data around CA9 staining in primary tumors and the suggestion that tumors that have very high carbonic and hydrose 9 staining... But I don't know that any one marker is going to get us there. I mean, I think probably understanding a broader panel, because right. even CA9 stating, it's going to be on a continuum. And drawing any particular cut point may or may not be all that robust. I think right now they're looking at something like 80 or 85% positive staining for CA9 in tissues in the epithelial component of tumors as a positive sign for response to hydrocyl 2 Probably the clinical parameters, though, are going to be just as useful as anything. And those are primarily people with low-volume disease, predominantly people with lung metastases, but not exclusive. And people have their primary tumors out. And I think that's an important step in preparation for high-dose 2 therapy. So how long ago was this, Ron? About four years. Four years ago. Okay, so I predict he went 
for high dose IL two and he's still in remission. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> okay. You're wrong. Sorry. Uh, well, you know, that was the era of targeted therapy. Okay, that was really when mm-hmm. we were just putting this on the stage. We all recognized that this was something different, and patients were very interested in pursuing this kind of treatment. And he went to sunitinib at that point in time. But he did very well. You I mean, he's him? still alive. He's partial responses. These patients have small nodules remaining in their lungs, and the guy is still being treated. Wow. Right? You know, so he's continuous I, therapy. I assume this is part of a trial if it was four years ago? Or? Part of a trial. Okay. But he's still on treatment. Okay. Wow. And so he's, uh, you know, dose reductions, obviously, with side effects. But, what kind uh, of problems does he have with his unit now? Generally, it's the fatigue and the myelosuppression that occurs. And maybe about a quarter of them develop hypothyroidism. What kinds of dose and schedule adjustments have you done? So he starts at 50, given for four weeks out of six. And then fatigue is generally what drives you to decrease the dose to 37 and a half. Was it worse at the end of the four weeks? Yes. Yeah. I mean, clearly those last two weeks are worse. And, you know, this group of people generally tend to minimize this symptom, or at least they try to, but they recognize that it interferes with their daily activities. And so at some point, somewhere around three to five months, they need a dose reduction or they need a week or two longer break in that treatment paradigm. So what's his current dose and schedule? He's still at 37 and a half. Wow. Dan, what do you think about the possibility of two weeks on, one week off, or continuous, or some other schedule or dose? Well, you know, it's interesting, Neil. When you think about this 4-2 regimen, it seems kind of arbitrary. And in fact, if you look back at the original development of sunitinib, it was developed actually by Pharmacia, an Italian company at the time, and did most of their phase one testing in Europe, but looked at a number of different regimens, including a 2-1 regimen as well as this 4-2 regimen. It's the 4-2 regimen that was developed in a phase one study out of France that originally showed the responses, four out of seven responses, partial responses, that really led to this particular regimen going forward. But it's not as if other dosing regimens aren't effective. It's just that this one was chosen based on that early efficacy that was seen. And in the whole idea of an intermittent dosing regimen for this drug, developed by pharmacy at the time, was around achieving a maximum tolerated dose. So they felt that they could get a maximum amount of dose in for that four-week period of time at 50 milligrams. They had patients going higher to 62.5, but that was felt to be too toxic in the majority of patients. So 50 is kind of where we ended with... It's almost like a chemo kind of model. It you, is almost like a chemo kind of model. kind of sort of sick and let them recover. And if you think about like 5-FU or Zalota and all the different dosing regimens that we use, you know, it's not inconceivable to say that this drug could be effective at a lot of different regimens and recognizing that by going to a different regimen like a 2-1 perhaps we could change the toxicity profile or kinetics over time. Having said that, you know, I don't like to mess with success. And the data that we have, really the only phase three data that we have published right now is with this four weeks on, two weeks off, 50 milligrams going down to 37.5. And when you see cases like what Ron has just presented, someone going now four years on this regimen, it's really hard to argue we should change this up and be treating patients routinely on other regimens. Until we have data that speaks to that, I'm reluctant to do that. Now, if I'm forced, because toxicity week three or week four is just too limiting, and I'm going down on dose well below 37.5, that's when we can start to contemplate those other approaches. But I, I like to have toxicity drive that rather than other metrics. And the challenge now, I find, with this field is the degree of toxicity that changes our dosing. 
it's not always grade three toxicity like it is in the clinical trials. It's typically chronic grade two or constellation of grade twos that drive that dose modification over a long period of time. And that's very different than the chemotherapy kind of paradigm that this whole regimen was started on. Well, sure, the dosing wasn't based on this chronic toxicity that we're all seeing right now. That's right. We're sort of dealing with it as best we can on the fly, if you will, and trying to learn as you go along. So the paradigm of intermittent dosing when we started this didn't seem to be the right one. I mean, at least that's what I thought. I thought it was going to be continuous low dosing, but clearly we were wrong. I mean, what works, works, and this particular regimen works. So, Dan, is there a dose at a 4-2 schedule that you don't want to do? It's too low that you'll switch to another agent before going down to? That's a really interesting question. And again, I wouldn't make a blanket statement on it. I actually have a case that talks about actually a pretty low dose that we use in somebody on study. And my point is this, is that pharmacokinetics for a flat dosing, like 50 milligrams daily, is going to vary pretty widely. I mean, probably not logs, but several fold variation in terms of that. So you're going to get outliers on both ends of that spectrum with flat dosing. And if somebody has toxicity that is driving down the dose, I'm willing to go lower and lower if that's legitimate, quantifiable toxicity, marrow suppression, like Ron had mentioned, or other significant, you know, mucositis or other things that we know real tissue penetration, toxicity driving. That, to me, can justify a lower dose. And I'll treat people all the way down. I don't like to go below 25 too often. You know, if I do have a floor, it's probably there. But you really do have to individualize based upon the profile. So, Ron, there was a concept in chemotherapy and a number of tumors, including testicular cancer, I would say, about the concept of getting the dose in on time that there was a feeling that there was a real correlation between the benefit and the dose delivered. I'm starting to hear people talk about that with the VEGF TKIs in renal cell, and I have seen a few papers that doesn't look that definitive. What's your take on that question? Do you feel like the more sunitinib, for example, you can deliver, the better the chance for response? I think the situation is not necessarily like testicular cancer, where it was clear that aggressive chemotherapy on time made the difference. Here, the dose may make the difference. I firmly agree with Dan. I'm just not sure that we have the evidence to demonstrate that. You know, all the data that we've looked at has been sort of retrospective. Where we've looked at AUCs, correlated them with the response and so on. We don't have any prospective evaluation of a dose and schedule. That's coming forth. I mean, I think we'll hear that at ASCO this year from the group where they're comparing 37.5 versus 50. And that'll be an important comparison for us because that'll give us a sense of, you know, are these concepts correct? I mean, is 50 milligrams the required amount? Do you really have to sort of keep the patient at 50, if at all possible, and try to accept the toxicity? Or can you achieve the same with a lower dose? And so it took us 10 years to get there in testicular cancer. So give us a little time, Neil. So, Dan, what about the issue of other VEGF TKIs that perhaps might have different toxicity profiles that allow you to get a higher, whatever the factor is that causes benefit? And specifically, I'm wondering about pazopinib, I guess exitinib, in terms of how do you see their tolerability safety profiles compared to sunitinib and the possibility of delivering a higher dose or maybe taking a patient who's having a real problem with sunitinib and trying on that because of the difference in toxicity profile? There's no doubt, Neil, that the more armamentarium we have, the more we will be able to individualize these therapies better for patients. And there are real differences between these drugs. 
none of these drugs are exact clones of each other. And there are advantages and disadvantages to each one. And I think over time, we're going to find our way of where each one has a niche or a benefit in which type of population. It's going to take some time. But I do think your concepts are right. The toxicity isn't what I would term an off-target toxicity. And what I mean by that is something that's not necessarily a VEGF receptor-driven toxicity. So hypertension, proteinuria, you know, even fatigue to some extent are kind of VEGF-driven toxicities. I think that as we go and we start looking at more of the mucositis and the hand-foot syndrome and some of these types of toxicities, I think that's where we get more of the off-target effect. How about fatigue? You know, fatigue is a really difficult one. It's multifactorial. And I think all of these drugs will have some degree of fatigue, but it's going to vary. And I think that the ones that have more kind of multi-targeted profiles are probably going to be associated with a greater amount of fatigue over time. The other thing is some of these have very different kinetics and they'll have relatively short half-lives and they won't necessarily have the active metabolites that might lead to cumulative toxicities whereas other ones may have a lot of cumulative toxicities over the course of months to a year or more. So there may be advantages, disadvantages that way as well. That's interesting. So, Ron, what do we know about the safety and tolerability of exitinib and pizopinib? Well, I mean, with pizopinib, we have a phase three study that gives us a sense of where it is. And I don't know if any of you listened to the ODAC proceedings. They went into great excruciating detail about the toxicity of pizopinib. And Were you involved with that? I wasn't involved with ODAC at this point in time, but I did tune in because I thought that this was a drug I'd like to hear what their deliberations, how they took form. And one of the concerns was hepatic toxicity. And as usual, though, this discussion took, you know, how much is too much? And hepatic toxicity is a difficult thing to evaluate in patients like this or on multiple medications. So it's hard to know whether it was pizopinib per se and what the exact incidence was. Whatever the case was, the risk-benefit ratio for the hepatic toxicity is acceptable with pizopinib in the setting of metastatic renal cell carcinoma. This is reversible when you stop the drug? It's reversible in the vast majority of patients. When you stop the drug, there were a few deaths associated with hepatic toxicity, and it was unclear whether pizopinib was responsible or not. So the data set is still small, and it's evolving. And, it's a transaminitis? And it's a transaminitis. And so that one of the recommendations with this agent that's going to come out is careful monitoring of the transaminase levels. What do you see in liver biopsy? You know, I don't know that they did liver biopsies. At least they didn't present any data. with. They had a couple of GI specialists who addressed this issue with regard to the frequency of this kind of finding in other situations. And these kinds of hepatic problems are not uncommon with new drugs. You see them. And you even see it with sunitinib. Sunitinib causes transaminitis really? also. Oh, yes. But any way to guess whether it's more common or less common with pizopinib? No. I mean, I think the guess that we will make will be based on the data that is now being generated in the right. phase randomized study. Right. The randomized trial, which for us in the field is really an important study because it's going to be one of the first comparisons of two new drugs for the treatment of this illness. And we all ask ourselves questions about which should be utilized, which has the better effect. We may not answer the effectiveness in that study, but we'll certainly answer some of the comparisons of toxicity. I'm hearing people say that the other toxicities, and particularly, I guess, hand-foot, I'm not sure about fatigue, but the off-target ones may be less with pizopinib than sunitinib, or do we not know that? I think we should reserve our judgments. We just put it this way. 
I've seen both drugs, and I know the data on both drugs, and I know the evolution of them. And I think right now, the possibility that pazopinib may have less side effects does exist, but I'm not certain that it's definitively shown. I think we just need to wait. And I think, you know, let's say this drug is approved by the FDA, and it should be based on what came out of that meeting. It'll be available to the community, and they will make some judgments based on their sense of, is the fatigue the same? My sense of the fatigue may not be all that different with these drugs. So so hard to tell, though, when you're just seeing a few patients. It is. It is. And that's why these large comparative trials are so important for what us. What do you think you're going to do if the drug were available today and you don't have any more data than we have today? How would you use it? If at so all? that was a question asked at the old accident. You know, do you need another drug? What are you going to do with this third kinase inhibitor? Who could you possibly use it in? Well, the answer was it may well fit into a niche, okay? It may fit into that niche of patients who have underlying cardiovascular disease who don't want to give sunitinib to. And do we know that pizopinib is not associated with cardiac problems? It has a few minor cardiac looks like less than but it looks like less than, well, that's, than that's that. Important. And so what they were looking for was a group of patients who might benefit from pizopinib who could not take, for example, sunitinib or bev interferon. Or even just clinically. They, as you're describing, Dan, a patient who just, you have to keep going down, down, down. I mean, I guess it's like the aromatase inhibitors, everybody thinks they're the same, but they still switch them around just looking for something. I think, you know, the thing you got to remember is that we do these studies in patients that are handpicked for clinical trials, all relatively good performance status, good organ function. We don't have that luxury in the community practice. We have to take everybody that comes in the door. And having drugs that give you flexibility around toxicity profiles is almost certainly going to define a niche for it. And you may not necessarily be true first line. You may start with a drug like sunitinib. And if you look, the timing of toxicity with that drug, probably half of our patients, if they're going to have an issue with that drug, will have it with the first cycle. And many of these are very difficult toxicities to re-challenge on. And that may be the patient we switch very early to pazopinib as we learn how these drugs are best suited for community practice. I mean, the other drug we didn't mention was excitinib. Excitinib is a very, very good drug. It has, when I think back, slightly differing toxicities, perhaps a little bit more hand-foot type phenomenon that we didn't recognize initially when we started to use this drug. Some more GI disturbance. I've heard more hypertension. More hypertension. And also, didn't they demonstrate that maybe the hypertension was correlated with benefit? Possibly. And that really leads to questions about, I mean, for example, these four TKIs bring in serafinib right now using indirect comparisons. You know, I guess a lot of people, Dan, have kind of come out with the idea that sunitinib has greater efficacy than serafinib. Do you agree with that, A? And B, what about these other two players? Any guesses about how the benefit's going to compare? You know, as much as we don't like to compare across studies, we have to. It's the only data we have. And until we have really head-to-head data on these compounds, we're limited by either our anecdotal experiences or doing comparisons across studies. If you do that, it does look like sunitinib may have a longer progression-free survival time in months than serafinib does. Again, you know, comparing across studies, which is not category one evidence at all, but it is what it is. It's all we got. And so I think it's not unreasonable to say, gee, you know, in a patient you think is reasonably good shape and can tolerate it, start with a drug like sunitinib. A lot of people do. Having said that, I think it's going to be a harder comparison with some of these newer drugs. And thankfully, we're going to have some head-to-head studies in the near future. I look at exitinib, interestingly, as potentially, at least on paper, as a more potent inhibitor of this pathway as a single drug. And if you think of that analogy, say, in CML where you know we might start with a Gleevec and then we've got opportunities now with agents that can rescue following that 
That's how exitinib is being developed. It's being developed as that potentially second-line drug that could work following treatment with an initial TKI like sunitinib. And I think that's a good niche to start in, to establish that it has a place in the field. But it, to me, that would raise the question, should it be studied in a head-to-head comparison, possibly against pazopinib, if that becomes a new standard in the frontline setting. So there will be opportunities to see more head-to-head studies. Interferon as a control arm is probably going to go away for the most part. And I think the next generation of phase three studies in this field really ought to be much more helpful in clarifying what the right order would be and which patients might benefit from one frontline study versus another. So we hope the cooperative groups would jump in here with their feet and get them wet in this area. What about pizopinib in terms of efficacy? What's your best guess right now in terms of how it compares to the other three? You know, I think it's going to be pretty comparable when you look across the board at pizopinib, at sunitinib. I think it's going to be hard to show a dramatic change. Probably the same is true with Avastin and Interferon in terms of progression-free survival rates and everything. So I think we're getting to a point where we're not going to get necessarily that next doubling of the progression-free survival rate that we had when interferon was our control arm. I guess one issue when you hear a case like this of a patient doing so well for so long is how often does this happen? With this drug, I would say somewhere around 15% of the time, 15 to 20%. You see patients who do exceptionally well, and it may reflect patient selection, it may reflect other variables, but there are people who do very, very well. So, it, And that's when we see these people, that's what we tell them. You know, The chances of this happening are there. And if this man were to progress, what would you be thinking about? Well, again, it's going to depend on where and what the circumstances are. He would likely be considered for second-line therapy at that point in time. And the second-line therapy for these patients who failed kinase inhibitors right now is defined as, as Everolimus. I mean, it may change in the near future, but that's what we have right now. So hopefully that won't happen for a long time or ever. Dan, which case would you like to present? This is actually a gentleman that came to see me from South Carolina He was diagnosed after presenting with weight loss and hematuria with a very large renal mass that was felt to be unresectable. And at his outside facility, they placed an IVC filter because he had this tumor thrombus extending up his IVC. And he came to see me as to what therapy options would be available for him. This was in 2004. At the time, with his primary tumor in place, he wouldn't qualify for clinical trials at that point that we had open. And this was somebody who had really a very small degree of pulmonary lesions that were really indeterminate at this point. They were really less than one centimeter. We actually reviewed his case at our tumor board, and we had some debate in the urology group as to whether or not this was resectable, not because of the tumor, but because of the IVC filter. And once that filters in for several weeks, that becomes very difficult to take out. We ended up taking him to surgery, and actually putting in an IVC graft, taking out that filter. And he had a very rocky course. He had terrible lower extremity edema for about three months and slowly recovered from that. So we did resect his tumor. What was his Uh, life situation? You know, he was a farmer, but his real love was fishing. And he had a pond in his farm, and that's really what he wanted to do. Now, he was widowed, but he had a daughter that was a caretaker throughout his course and was just a steadfast support with him every visit. But previously Uh, totally healthy? Previously pretty healthy guy. You know, maybe a little bit of hypertension, but no major cardiac history or anything, a good cardiac function and everything. And the graft worked? And the graft eventually worked. He had all this edema. Eventually he developed enough collaterals and then enough flow through that that his edema resolved and came back to see me. 
At the time, the studies we had were really for cytokine failures. Now, with all of that post-operative, of course, we felt that high-dose interleukin-2 would have been too difficult. And over that three-month period of time, his pulmonary lesions did increase. So we felt, given the extent of his primary tumor and the growth that we saw in his lungs, that that was consistent with metastatic disease, we treated him actually with interferon. And he responded. I had him treated locally rather than coming back and forth to Duke. And he had a partial response for about six months. And he tolerated it, it reasonably well, 2004. Yeah, it's amazing when you think about it, Ron. 2004, and you know, we don't even think about it. Five years ago, everything mm-hmm. has completely changed. Yeah, the only time I think about interferon now is when I think about bevacizumab. Right. That's right. You know, that's right. That's the only time. Right. That's right. Amazing. But it's interesting in thinking about the new approval for bevacizumab in interferon. I mean, I think there's a lot of reluctance to go back to that. Right. So there's a lot of bad memories. And yet, there is a subset of patients that respond to that medicine. And you can titrate to toxicity, just like we do with the new targeted therapies. I guess, too, Ron, I mean, there's a lot of experience with bevacizumab in clinical practice, colon cancer, breast, lung, et cetera. And, you know, people from a quality of life tolerability point of view, I mean, there are issues about potential complications, but, you know, they feel good. And I guess there's a reluctance. What do we know about how necessary the interferon really is? Well, I think we know that the study tells us it's necessary right now. Without that data, we don't have a combination that's useful in the treatment of advanced kidney cancer. But we do have so, some data with Bev alone. We do, but I mean, I'm partially responsible for the data, but I'm... <laughs> I'm <laughs> Take some credit Well, here, but Rob. I mean, uh, you know, we're in the era now of level one evidence for this disease, and level one evidence requires the randomized trial. That's sort of what we all feel we should see in order to move into using a new drug or a new combination. And that level one evidence is with bevacizumab and interferon. Unfortunately, do we think that bevacizumab alone would have an effect? Yes, I think there's no doubt that it would have an effect. I don't know that it would be as great as sunitinib, but it may well be. I think, you know, to compare across studies is very dangerous. But I think it's unfortunate that we don't have that data, nor do we seem to... I mean, the closest we'll get is from the cooperative groups, and that's the forearm study where Bevalone is a single arm in one of those studies. Unfortunately, that's not all untreated patients, but it will give us another data set that we can look at and judge for ourselves. That's a really cool study. Can you review the arms of that, Dan? Yeah, so it's a forearm study in ECOG, and it's actually an intergroup study. CLGB is supporting it as well. And it's looking at three doublets in a single arm of bevacizumab. The three doublets are bevacizumab temsirolimus, which is full dose of both drugs. And then there's a temsirolimus serafinib arm, which is a decreased dose of both drugs, so 15 milligrams of temsirolimus and I think 200 milligrams of serafinib. And then there is a bevacizumab serafinib arm, that also has a dose reduction, I think five mg per kg of bevacizumab and 200 of serafinib. So you're looking at doublets that have, at least two of the doublets that have some dose reductions in order to make them tolerable, one doublet that's full dose of both drugs, and then the single arm bevacizumab alone. I mean, do we have any safety data at this point? From that trial, how many people are going? Is it just open or? It's over halfway accrued. So, you know, we'll we'll finish it, but we don't have any safety signals. But, you know, I'd like to bring one point up about safety and particularly as it pertains to doublets. Because, you know, as we see the singlet data in patients responding for 10 months to a year, what you look at in our clinical trials in terms of safety reporting is, I think, very misleading. And what I mean by that is that traditionally safety has been reported as our grade three to five toxicity rates across the board. We give no mention to the reproducibility of those, the chronicity of those, 
or what is most common, the grade one and grade two toxicities and the reproducibility and chronicity of that. And the reason is, is because this is a reporting structure that is, again, out of the culture of chemotherapy, where we're dealing with regimens at an MTD for a short window of time, a few months. When you're in the era of chronic therapy, I think you really need to rethink how we even present our safety data that's most relevant to patient management in the community. And to me, the kinetic of toxicity is far more important than the incidence. So if you have grade three fatigue, you hold drug, you dose reduce, and then you don't have it again, that's a much more tolerable profile than somebody that has grade three fatigue every four weeks, you know, building up for a week and a half, and then taking a two-week break and then having it again. That, you know, to me is much more problematic in our patient population. So I think that, you know, even this study, unfortunately, in the cooperative groups, we tend to focus on our grade three and above toxicities, may not necessarily give us the right safety profile information we need. What will be most useful, Neil, will be how many dose reductions and how that ultimately affects progression-free survival. And you're already starting out with two of the arms with a pretty significant dose reduction. And I guess, too, Ron, we have some concerns about maybe people trying this outside of protocol. I've heard a lot of strong feelings against doing that, I guess, particularly because of the Bevsunitinib experience. Can you comment on that? Well, I think it's being done. I mean, I think you have access to these drugs, and people who are giving... For example, Tim Serlimus may well add BEV to that combination when they see progression. It does happen. I don't know the frequency that it does happen, but it unquestionably does happen. So we try to caution everybody, you know, right now we're not quite ready for this. I don't think we're ready because, number one, we have, you know, efficacy to me is the one issue here. So is toxicity, but efficacy. And we have no idea whether this is going to be better, the same, or worse than. And number two, we're entering into an era of cost right now, and these are exceptionally expensive regimens. And unless we can show, you know, really degrees of benefit that we feel are acceptable for the costs, I think we have to reflect on this very carefully. So I mean, we have to be careful. I mean, the studies are important ones. They're going to give us a sense of the interaction of the drugs, you know, the biology behind this perhaps, but we're not ready to put this out there right now and use it in the community. But am I correct in saying the toxicity with bevsunitinib was pretty serious? The toxicity with bevsunitinib was potentially serious. I think the, the studies we anemia? did at the Cleveland Clinic didn't show the hemolytic anemia that was seen at Memorial. The patients were somewhat different. We didn't have as many patients with kidney cancer as they did. And I think the manuscript that was published in JCO from Memorial made the statement that perhaps you can give the combination, but not at those doses. Right? So at full dosing, they saw four or five cases of what looked like microangiopathy, and that's a very serious complication. So it's not something that should be utilized together. And I would agree with Ron. In my eyes, where I see combinations is going to be on that third and fourth line setting, where we've failed a number of monotherapies, and where maybe you would justify a higher toxicity profile for a chance of further efficacy. Up front, if you've got a median progression-free survival with sunitinib of 11 months, you'd have to look at a combination that would have to go well beyond that to capture not only your sunitinib, but then your subsequent second-line therapy with something like bevacizumab and that thing, just to kind of show an improvement in progression for survival. I think that's going to be very difficult to justify any greater toxicity for. So I think it'll be on the back end. This gentleman, now having said that, you know, all my bashing about combinations, actually went on a combination phase one study of pazopinib and lapatinib. It was a study we had in our phase one group, and he did exceedingly well. So remember, this is the gentleman that had six months response to interferon, then progressed. Where now did the lapatinib come from? Is there any data on lapatinib and renal you know, cell? At the time, so this is 2005 now. 
At the time, there was some phase two data with lapatinib in renal cell carcinoma, and actually GSK did a very large uh, phase two study with lapatinib, uh, randomized yeah, phase two study. They did a very large randomized outside the U.S. What did they see? Nothing. Nothing. But they, you know, they So he really got possessed. Well, they had, they had some subsets really that appeared to do well. So, so they, were, they were interested in combining a very potent VEGF inhibitor with sure. their EGFR inhibitor. Yeah, and this was sense. not necessarily a renal specific phase yeah. one. This I was see. this was early right. phase one. I mean, data. So it was a, a well designed Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, all in all, this gentleman tolerated the drugs pretty well, except for diarrhea. Diarrhea was the limiting toxicity, as you can imagine, overlapping to some extent with both drugs. And ultimately, we dosed reduced and we had to drop the lapatinib. But he stayed on, he responded, and he continued to respond for almost two years. Wow. And then he subsequently went on to sunitinib, got about six months out of sunitinib. We treated him with temsirolimus for a while. He came back to us. We treated him with serafinib. He got a finitor. He just died on me about two months ago. But he had a tremendous run. And to me, the lesson I learned from this was the idea of alternating from one drug to another, that that the cumulative effect of all of these manipulations offers the greater survival. And you're absolutely right. We've learned that in breast cancer. We've learned that in colon cancer. We learned it in prostate cancer with our hormonal therapies, secondary manipulations and chemotherapies and what have you, that, you know, no one drug is by itself curing these patients, but the sequencing and the cumulative effect of multiple agents ultimately is prolonging the natural history of these diseases, including now renal cell carcinoma, well beyond what we would have seen in years past. And this is a gentleman, had we never taken his primary out, he may not have even lived a year. Both of these cases show us that there is a role for removal of the primary tumor. The case that Dan presented, you resurrected this fellow. I mean, you know, the surgery was not done initially, unfortunately, making it much more difficult the second time around. But just points out that removal of the primary tumor does have a role there. These patients will go for years with continuing therapy in that setting. Is there any role for neoadjuvant therapy, systemic therapy, to try to convert someone from unresectability to resectability? And was that thought about in this man? You know, at the time, we didn't have these back. targeted yeah, therapies. Right, you right. Know, we, we really had interferon. You right, know? And so right. it wasn't really an option. And there have been a couple of small phase two studies that have looked at that. MD Anderson yeah, Eric and Jonas, uh, Eric Jonas right. just published yeah. in JCO on the experience with Bevacizumab. And actually, you know, a think, lot of those patients had tumor shrinkage. I mean, it wasn't that... Well, I mean, I think the the, the clinic published it, too. Brian Reaney and my colleagues published the same data. About a third of the patients, give or take a few percent, have some shrinkage of the primary tumor. The real issue here is what does it contribute to the long term? And I think for neoadjuvant therapy in the setting, it's one of these things where you individualize. You see a patient who urologist tells you, no, I cannot do this or I won't do this. So why don't you treat him initially and see what happens, Mm -hmm. right? And that's the kind of individual we're talking about now. Yeah. I would say in general, if we can do the surgery, we'd like to do it up front. Yeah. Uh, and surgery, we, you know, preferable. off protocol, we don't like to do a lot of neoadjuvant. Now, neoadjuvant is a great opportunity for a clinical trial opportunity to learn about how these drugs are working and look at pharmacodynamic effects. Right. But this idea of converting unresectable to resectable, the incidences of actually being able to do that are fairly anecdotal still. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, when I think about, for example, that concept in liver mets from colon cancer, where they're trying to pull the lesion back from a critical structure, that kind of makes sense. But when I think about the kidney, I can't think of how it could really work. It's really individualized by the surgeon. It depends on the surgeon who's doing it. And some of them can remove just about anything. Others will be less aggressive. And so it really is, it's hard to generalize here. So the last thing I'd ask you about is his hair color change. I thought that was interesting. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, you know, people like to blame a lot on their drugs, but no, I think this was real. And this was a gentleman that came in really with, you know, he had a few gray hairs, but he's mostly, you know, kind of dark-haired gentleman. Over the course of his bizopinib, he turned completely white, Santa Claus white, including his beard, his eyebrows, all of his body hair, and all of his hair on his head. How so, common is uh, that? From my own experiences, you know, in the study, we saw streaking, this kind of complete whiting of the hair. You know, this was our only example of that. From what I understand, I think it's somewhere in the 20% range that we see kind of whitening of the hair. But What's complete the whitening, I don't know. We're told it's C-kid inhibition that's responsible hmm. for this. But the streaking Dan mentions is it's not unique to pizoponib. It occurs sure. with these other drugs, too. And right. you've seen women who have you know dark hair, and they started a sunetinib, and then they come back in six, eight months. They have these streaks of gray among black hair. 